All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the Proof of Words podcast. I'm, as always, your host, Pat, and with me, my co-host, Matt. Uh, today, we have uh, Florian Bruce joining us. I mean, Florian, if you would be so kind, perhaps you can give us a, a quick introduction to yourself and what it is you do in the Bitcoin and crypto space. I'm very happy to be here. I'm Florian. I'm from Germany. I think a lot of people could hear that from my accent. And I've been in the Bitcoin crypto so space. Where about in Germany? Uh, you're in Berlin, correct? Uh, I live in Berlin, but right now I'm in Hamburg. Ah, okay. So Hamburg is actually my favorite German city. Um, I, I love being near the water. Uh, I love the, uh, what, what is it called? The Hafenstadt area exactly. of Hamburg. Absolutely beautiful. I used to love going to the uh, fish docks at four or five in the morning, getting your early morning fish and then heading home and cooking it. You have an awesome taste. Hamburg is my favorite city in Germany as well. And I will move to Hamburg actually next year. So that's oh, wonderful. I, I completely agree. And yeah, so I, <clears throat> I got into cryptos in 2016 and mm -hmm. I have, I have two passions in my heart. And the one passion is uh, natural science. I studied physics and the other passion is entrepreneurship. I own an e-commerce company. And when I saw Bitcoin in 2016, it felt as if it would combine both passions into one. It combines physics, mathematics with economics, business. And that was what caught my attention. It took a while until I understood the Bitcoin white paper. Mm -hmm. And during my physics studies and starting the company, I was quite busy. So I didn't do anything except buy a bit of Bitcoin and do nothing. Mm -hmm. Then I had a, mm, a altcoin phase where I thought that other coins like Ethereum had a valid value proposition. After the proof of the merge from proof of work to proof of stake from Ethereum, I dove way deeper into the mechanics of both Bitcoin and Ethereum and all the other altcoins and noticed that in my opinion, basically Bitcoin is the only crypto asset which has which makes sense and which will swallow up all the other crypto assets, in my opinion. And I turned to Bitcoin only then. And ever since I run my company, my company is on a Bitcoin standard. We, tre our treasury only has Bitcoin. We don't have any cash in our treasury mm -hmm. and in our long term treasury. Obviously, we need working capital. I think that's, <laughs> that's obvious. You need to pay um, salaries day to day, right? I mean, exactly. So you convert it from Bitcoin to your, yeah, you, I know what you mean. So I, I, long term, everything is in Bitcoin. I have working capital and, and salaries and cash, obviously. Um, yeah. And that's, that's how, where I'm at right now. I have a podcast also in Germany that's somewhere in the top 10 of business podcasts. And we have two episodes about Bitcoin. One is three and a half hours. The other one is four hours. And these are both the most successful podcast in my hundred or so episodes of podcasts. So um, I'm, I'm quite happy about that. It, it's called Proactive Podcast, but it's in German. So I think none of the I, So English I actually, audience... when we got introduced by Calvin, I actually tried to listen to one of your podcasts and I got about five seconds in before I couldn't understand <laughs> anything anymore. I didn't realize it was first in German. Um, now, I've been living in Germany for eight or nine years at this point and still haven't picked up the language. Um, it's not a shame. Cut, uh, Lernen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think I even got that sentence wrong. Um, no. So actually, your journey is kind of fascinating. And to a certain extent, it parallels mine. Um, 
I mean, I got into crypto because I fell in love. I mean, I knew what Bitcoin was. I had invested in Bitcoin uh, back in 2011, 2012, lost $500 on it. And I said, fuck this, I'm out. Um, and then I kind of rediscovered Bitcoin when I was working, or I don't want to say rediscovered Bitcoin, but rediscovered crypto uh, when I was working on the venture capital team at the Deutsche Börse. This is back in 2015, 2016. And that's largely because I fell in love with the concept of tokenization, which obviously at the time was only happening on Ethereum and other layer ones. And working in the Bitcoin and the crypto space for the last six, seven years, for me, it really has pretty much entirely become about Bitcoin. I had to go through a personal journey of looking at the layer ones. And I'm not a mathematician. I'm not a technologist by any means. But I guess just because I'm very much a libertarian by nature, that's just kind of where my personal compass goes towards. Bitcoin just spoke to me. So I'd love to hear from a physician's, a mathematician's perspective. What was that thought process for you going from the other layer ones, or at least exploring the value prop of the other layer ones, and inevitably arriving on Bitcoin. Because I imagine you probably went on a slightly different journey than I did. Yeah, so it's, there are a couple of angles with which I saw the other layer ones. And the first and most obvious angle was that every other cryptocurrency has a company which controls that cryptocurrency and mm. all of them are decentralized like the but behind them right exactly and all yeah. of them say they are decentralized but if you look under the hood they are decentralized in name only and very very centralized at the core even ethereum i think their ipo ico were had an allocation of 70 percent for private yeah, people yeah Exactly. And now where it changed to proof of stake, it felt for me as if those people just want to get paid. And since they have the biggest allocation, they get the biggest stake. So the in an economic sense, you would say the difference between a commodity and a security. Every other cryptocurrency is a security because they have somebody who can control, who can control the supply more or less, who can do a merge from proof of work to proof of stake. And that that that's something which they all have in common except for bitcoin solana has basically a handful of nodes which are all controlled by solana cardano has a handful of node nodes which are all controlled by cardano ethereum has a handful of nodes which are all controlled by michael lubin and and vitalik and uh so it's there was an inconsistency for me seeing that they all portrayed themselves as decentralized, but weren't decentralized at all. And then there were roadmaps and everything like that. Mm. Then the second point was proof of work versus proof of stake. Proof of work is rooted in the laws of physics. It's rooted in the real world, whereas proof of stake basically creates your own world of physics. And that's what Vitalik said for himself when the merge happened. He said, now finally we have created our own world of physics with our own rules. And I think that may make sense for a computer game, but not for a global decentralized monetary system. And the last point is, which actually was one of the reasons why I got interested in Bitcoin in the first place, was as a physicist, you are used to have everything measured with a constant scale. 
you measure weight on a fixed scale, which is kilograms. You measure speed on a fixed scale. Hey, you're talking is... to a bunch of Americans in here. We're still on that imperial thing. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Okay, you, you, you measure, but even but your what, imperial what is this system. Kilogram you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, but you have a one-to-one -one conversion from kilogram to pounds is a conversion right. which does not change. It's not like when we were on the gold standard. You, it was very easy to do business internationally because every other country was also on the gold standard and mm -hmm. it was just uh, the the French franc, franc was 0.02 ounces of gold. The dollar was 0.07 ounces of gold and it was a fixed measurement which you could convert in one another. Similar as I can convert kilograms into pounds. But also mm -hmm. speed. You We measure speed at miles per hour. We measure distance at miles. We measure energy in watts. We measure everything with a fixed scale except for wealth. And in wealth, we are, for some reason, we started to decouple from a fixed scale and give the politicians the power to change the scale at will. And as a physicist, it's very concerning when somebody tries to so i'm going to ask you to elaborate on yeah. that really quick because i i think i know exactly what you're saying but for a lot of people they'll look at this and go well the measure of wealth i mean okay we can talk about intangibles like family friends etc cetera, etc cetera. let's eliminate that from the equation here we're looking at just a pure measure of money most people will say well okay If I have a million dollars or a million euro, I can measure that wealth. I know how wealthy that person is from a financial standpoint relative to somebody that has $10 million or euro, which is what most people believe. It's what most people see because that's the money that they've been used to. So why is it that you're saying that the scale is shifting? Because from the layman's so, perspective, it's not. So on a relative perspective he is correct it does not change if i have a million and you have 10 million then we the distance between us will always be the same distance and that if that would change that would be an obvious change but what happens is what you can buy with the million or what you can buy with the 10 million that changes so imagine you have a scale and on the one side you have all the goods and services money can buy and on the other side you have all the money in the world which can buy these goods and services so, and they are in equilibrium. And if you increase the amount of goods and services purchasable in the world and holding the amount of money constant, you can buy more goods and services with the same amount of money, which means that your purchasing power increases. Mm -hmm. If you hold the goods and services constant and increase the money Without increasing the goods and services, you have more money for the same goods and services. So you need more to buy the same. And everybody intuitively feels that, which is called inflation. If you, if you buy a house today, it costs you minimum of $500,000. If you would have bought a house 40 years ago, it would have cost you maybe minimum of $100,000. And that is exactly what I mean by the scale changes, the house isn't more productive, the house isn't worth more, but the money is worth less. And that's why the 
houses get more expensive, not because they're more valuable, but because the money is less valuable. Which those that follow economics, um, those that follow monetary theory, obviously are cognizant of that fact. But it's interesting you come at it from a physician's angle where in the natural world, and forgive me, I'm not a physician by any means. I took a physics class, I think, in high school. And that's that's the... Isn't it a physicist? Is physician doctor? I think... See, that's how bad I yeah, am at yeah. this. Uh, <laughs> so um, uh, a physicist, I mean, you come at Bitcoin from a completely different angle. So what is it specifically about Bitcoin? And I guess that fixed scale of Bitcoin that kind of allures to you, whereas the other layer ones don't. I mean, what, mm -hmm. what was, what's the key contributing factor um, that brought you back? So, so Bitcoin is r really decentralized. Bitcoin cannot be controlled by anybody. Bitcoin is rooted in energy with proof of work. These are all the soft facts. Well, what would you say to those that would argue, because um, this is what a typical altcoiner um, will say, like, okay, but you only have a certain amount of Bitcoin miners on earth and they have to achieve a certain scale to be viable Bitcoin miners. You also have the mining pools that everybody aggregates towards and that, I mean, at any given point in time, uh, arguably Ant Pool and Huobi or whoever else, the Binance Pool, they could collude together and completely overtake the Bitcoin network. Therefore, it can't be decentralized. What's your argument against them? That is an argument which comes from a mindset which is used to proof of stake. Because mm -hmm. when you have proof of stake and you delegate your coins to a pool, you physically send your coins to that pool and have no custody over the, over these coins. And the pool controls your coins and can control the blockchain, uh, control the, the voting power of your coins a hundred percent with proof of work. You, you have your miner somewhere at home, maybe in your basement, run, uh, calculating hashes and you just point your miner to the pool. And it's just an agreement that if one of the guys in the pool wins the block, the, uh, the block subsidy gets distributed amongst all of them in accordance to the hash, which they contribute. So it's a virtual mining pool with which I have custody over the hardware. And if one of these mining pools decide to do something stupid, I will just point my mining, my mining rig to another mining pool. So there's no chance that Ant mining pool can collude with Biden's mining pool because they don't control the hardware, which is in the mining pool. I control my hardware and every other miner who participates in this mining pool controls his uh, his hardware and therefore he decides what he does and it's just a revenue share agreement. So I love how beautifully and simply you put that because I think that's something that a lot of a lot of naysayers of Bitcoin, a lot of naysayers of Bitcoin mining will point to as a reason why it is not decentralized, which at the end of the day it's just not true. Um, I mean I hypothesize the only way that you could theoretically see that vector of attack open is if somebody individually ends up controlling 51% of the hash power, right? Yes, Which exactly. is as, as, as and you have to control that much mining rig and you can't do it via the mining pools. The mining pools are, as you've just eloquently exactly. said, just a revenue share. You would have to physically own and control enough 
data warehouses or not data warehouses, but you'd have to physically control enough Bitcoin mining warehouses, enough ASICs to be able to hijack that network. A, there might not be enough money on this God's earth to build up a business like that nowadays. Every Bitcoin miner is doing their absolute best to grow at scale. One of our portfolio companies, Northern Data, is trying to acquire as many uh, ASICs, as many GPUs, as uh, anything that they possibly can, and they're throwing it into Bitcoin mining, right? There isn't enough energy necessarily available cheaply to be able to even achieve that. And there's not enough chips on Earth at a reasonable cost to be able to achieve that. I mean, couple that with the fact that if you play game theory, there's no real incentive to hijack the network. Because if you did, you're literally shooting yourself in the, you're not even shooting yourself in the foot. You're shooting yourself in the goddamn head because you'll have spent God knows how many trillions of dollars to build out that infrastructure to hijack the Bitcoin network, but effectively making it worthless by committing that 51% attack. There's no incentive to do that. Perfectly said. And maybe one last point, you have a ticking time clock because in proof of stake, I could use, I could take as long time as I want to accumulate enough money to have 51% of the stakes in proof of work. I only have a time window of maybe two to three years because every two to three years, new mining equipment gets issued on the market. And I need to repurchase all the new mining equipment because it's always like a hundred to a thousand X or maybe 2000 X more efficient than the old mining rigs. So I'm, I have a very limited time window in which I could pull this off. And even mm. if I would succeed, there's not a lot of things a 51% attack can do because if you have a 51% attack, it basically means that every second block gets not mined by these miner. So the worst thing which they can do is make a, uh, like a DDoS attack. Spe uh, hmm. They can, they can block a transaction for maybe one block, but the next block goes to somebody else. To really take control of the network, you need like a 97% attack. And even then you can maybe block a transaction for 10 hours, 20 hours, but you cannot alter the blockchain or anything because they are still the nodes, which, uh, uphold the rules of Bitcoin, regardless of what the miner do. So in that realm, would one be able to take over enough of the nodes to theoretically institute a fork um, that for whatever change they would like to see to the Bitcoin network? You, you could spin up a lot of nodes and then do a fork and pretend as if 51% or 60% of all the nodes would agree because you control those 60% of nodes, then they'll, the fork will get a new coin named Bitcoin 2.0 or something. And yeah. everybody would get an allocation of Bitcoin 2.0 and then game theory is on. And then it, then the holders decide what they do. Will they sell their normal Bitcoin and convert it to Bitcoin 2.0 or will they sell their Bitcoin 2.0 and convert it into real Bitcoin? And we See, had this. This is why I always say the node attack vector doesn't work. How yeah, many exactly. forks of Bitcoin have we seen? I mean, exactly. obviously the most famous one is Bitcoin Cash, which, okay, that yeah. forked in a, I mean, we don't have to get into it, but I mean, that forked in a way that, uh, I mean, at the time it kind of worked out. I mean, okay, Roger Ver wanted bigger block size, um, 
some people agreed that was the right way to go. So they forked it and they have Bcash. You had others like Bitcoin Diamond and God knows. I mean, even Dogecoin to a certain extent is a fork of the Bitcoin core, right? Uh, many, 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 many years ago, Litecoin's a fork. Uh, but nobody goes away from Bitcoin. So basically, to sum up the two points we've just made right here, you can't hijack Bitcoin. You can't really 51% attack it through the exahash. And you can't do it through the nodes. So the ultimate conclusion that anyone therefore must have is Bitcoin is 100% completely decentralized. I would agree. And it's the best, it's the most secure computer system which hasn't been hacked ever in 15 years, although the incentive to hack it is quite high. Imagine you could hack Satoshi's wallet. You would get one million Bitcoins on the spot. That's, I don't know, $30 billion or something. It's quite the bounty for somebody to hack this wallet. And I think that is, it's way easier to hack a proof of stake system with unlimited mm -hmm. money, with unlimited uh, AI power, but it's, it's not possible to do that with Bitcoin because it is, it is partly rooted in the real world with energy. And that's the beauty of Bitcoin in my mind. So one of the, biggest pushbacks against Bitcoin is its tie to the real world, is its energy consumption. You're a physicist. Is this something that overly concerns you? Or is this something that you think is more of a feature rather than a bug in the Bitcoin ecosystem? I think it's one of the biggest features. And it people who who argue that point, they argue that point because they on if you look on the surface it sounds very coherent what they say how mm. is it that a monetary system uses so much energy where we are in a world with climate crisis and who knows what it uses more it uses more energy than denmark right exactly exactly and that sounds spectacular but the as a physicist it's pretty obvious we don't have we, we don't have an energy scarcity on the planet We just have the problem that energy is at the wrong places on the planet. And mm. we, we have a, a lot of geothermal energy all over the world. We have a lot of hydropower energy all over the world. We have a lot of solar power all over the world, but it's at, it's at the wrong places. And with any form of energy, it's always the question, how can we send it over space and how can we send it over time? And to send it over time, you need a battery. And to send it over space, meaning from the Sahara to, to, to from the Sahara where we have a lot of sun to New York, requires a lot of transport mechanisms, which are very, very, very expensive and not feasible at the moment at large scales. So it costs a lot of energy to transfer that energy. Exactly, too, more right? energy. Exactly, exactly. So <clears throat> we we have the problem that the energy is not at the right places. And the energy with, and places where energy is abundant, they, this energy cannot be utilized because it cannot be transported. And mm. that is basically the energy which Bitcoin miners utilize. They would never compete with real consumers on the normal grid because it would be way more expensive even for a Bitcoin miner to compete with real consumers if they could also go to sub-Sahara Africa or to Iceland or to El Salvador and mine with the volcanoes. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> so the energy which is used from Bitcoin is mostly energy 
which would not have been used at any other point in time ever. That is one point, but it's, there are a few other points as well. And the, <clears throat> one point I mean, is I think a good example here is uh, mm-hmm. one of the most successful Bitcoin mining outfits on Earth is BitRiver. Uh, based mm-hmm. out of Siberia, right? Mm-hmm. They exactly. use excess hydraulic capacity at one of the largest uh, dams on Earth. I actually think it's, if it's not the largest dam, I think it is one of, it, it is the second largest, if memory serves correct. I m- remember meeting the CEO of it a few years ago. And basically, they just have a profit sharing agreement with the hydraulic whoever it is that manages that facility, that whenever there's an excess capacity, BitRiver turns on their rigs, uh, they help regulate the grid. And for for energy that was going to be produced and not consumed anyway, so this energy was going to be produced, the resources were going to be used. And mind you, this is a 100% sustainable energy resource being a hydraulic dam. Uh, They're just converting it purely in a profit sharing agreement into Bitcoin. I mean, that just sounds like an amazing use case, right? And when you talk about what's happening in Texas with uh, the maintenance of the smart grids, I mean, you're a physicist. You can explain it infinitely better than I can. That seems like a huge net positive for anybody that would be on the environmentalist side, right? I mean, maybe you can elaborate on how that works. I'd love to. So Texas, if you have a grid, you have the, the same mechanics of supply and demand as in every market. And you... You cannot build the grid infinitely big because then you always run on low capacity and that is basically money waste. You cannot Mm. build the grid too small because when you have a spike in demand, you your grid is overheated and you cannot supply the demand. So it's a very hard balancing to build. Exactly. And then you have blackouts, exactly. And the and now with Bitcoin you can build the grid as big as you want because all the excess energy which cannot be used because the grid is too big can be now used with Bitcoin mining and it can generate a profit so it subsidizes the big grid. And when you have a demand spike as in Texas in summer where everybody turns on their AC conditions, Mm -hmm. uh, air conditions, you can reduce the Bitcoin mining part and increase the normal operating part and the grid works very, very smoothly. So Bitcoin is basically a subsidy for energy which cannot be used and once the energy needs is is needed on the spot, Bitcoin can be turned off immediately. And for everybody who's not in the energy market, there's no other technology which can take so much energy on on demand and then can mm-hmm. be turned off whenever it needs to be turned off you cannot put a, a nuclear powered something and f- feed it with the energy because it cannot be turned off very quickly so that's the first technology which is uh, i mean a nuclear rod can't be turned off ever exactly right? exactly they, they can only just mm-hmm. be hidden under nodes exactly. uh, under god knows how much cement right <laughs> Exactly. So it, if I would be an environmentalist and if I w- wanted to say, okay, let's, let's build a lot of wind farms, a lot of solar panels and everything, uh, Bitcoin basically is the savior because if you, if you want to build everything with solar, you have a very, you have times where the sun is so, so hot, uh, not hot, uh, where the sun is shining so much that you have mm-hmm. too much energy which you cannot distribute. 
And with Bitcoin, you can monetize this energy so that the solar panels get subsidized. And when you have no sun, then the when you when you have a lot of solar panels because you can subsidize them with Bitcoin and then there's a lesser intensity of the sun, it will still suffice to provide enough energy needed. So uh, for me, Bitcoin is the biggest enabler for renewable energies. It's the biggest stabilizer for grids and it uses energy which is not being used anywhere else. So for me, it's uh, energy positive. So, I mean, I always say, and I get ridiculed for this constantly, um, I mean, if you're into the ESG sort of thing, which at the end of the day, I don't think there's anyone on earth that fundamentally disagrees with what the ESG movement is trying to accomplish. I mean, I think everyone can agree, okay, we want to do stuff that is environmentally friendly. We don't want to damage our environment. Um, we obviously want to make sure that there is social accountability for products and services or whatever it is that we produce. And while governance is a very abstract concept, I think everybody can agree that we want proper governance procedures. Like, and right now we're kind of fixated on democracy being the end all be all of governance, but that's neither here nor there. I think everybody agrees that these are outcomes humanity probably wants to collectively achieve together. But I think what most people disagree with is the manner in which the ESG movement is trying to do this. Now, what I always say is regardless of what your view is on ESG, Bitcoin, to me, is far and away the most ESG-friendly investment. I agree. And I mean, so I'm not even... I mean, the biggest problem I think the ESG movement has is it hyper-focuses on the E part of it. Um, it only really focuses on the environmental aspect of it, which, okay, neither here nor there. But Bitcoin has the perfect mathematical and transparent governance model over its monetary system. Having censorship-resistant peer-to-peer e-cash outside of the hands of government-manipulated money okay, if you disagree and think that government money is better, then we're going to have just have a fundamental, uh, we're going to have to agree to disagree on which one is better for society. But for me, the S is completely covered by Bitcoin over fiat or anything else. And then the environmental side of thing, this is actually where I think it gets interesting because exactly the points that you just made, Bitcoin theoretically should be a tool that those that are environmentalists or even politicians that are more on the left side, because usually this is uh, something that speaks more um, to uh, Democrats or people on the left, progressives, it should be used as a tool that can ultimately create the most environmentally friendly, sustainable, renewable resource generation that anybody's ever been able to do in humanity. I mean, Bitcoin is the ultimate incentive to create a cheap, renewable energy source. And that for the life of me, I don't understand why certain progressives don't see that. All they see is, oh, it uses more energy than Denmark. Therefore, it's bad, right? They can't, they, they, they don't go past that. And I was actually out to dinner one night. I mean, I recently just moved uh, to San Francisco. And uh, obviously, San Fran is notoriously more on the left side. So I was out to dinner with another Bitcoiner. And I mean, he's obviously a little bit more left than I am. Um, I think most everybody's a little bit more left than I am. But anyways, <laughs> <laughs> we're being completely um, But we were having a conversation and he just kept harking on like, yeah, I believe in Bitcoin because of what it does for financial inclusion. 
Okay, yeah. fantastic. Uh, but he hates Bitcoin for its energy consumption. And him and I started having a conversation. I brought up pretty much exactly these points. And I started talking about what it's doing in Texas, maintaining the integrity of the grid. And he started going down on a tangent that I had never even really conceived of before. He was like, well, okay, what does that mean? Uh, could that be used for UBI, uh, universal basic income? Now, when I hear those words, I immediately turn off. UBI for me is just a horrifying concept. The idea of governments giving money uh, to individuals for whatever reason, for no purpose at all. I'm just fundamentally against that. But then he brought up a point which I hadn't comprehended. I mean, we are, I think, all familiar with the one UBI program, at least that I can reference, that has been wildly successful on Earth, and that's Alaska. Uh, most citizens in Alaska, if not every resident of Alaska, and I might be getting this slightly wrong, so I'm paraphrasing here, um, they are entitled to a revenue share, a profit share from the oil reserves that are harvested in Alaska, every resident of Alaska. So they get a paycheck month to month for the resources their state contributes to the world. Okay, I mean, that doesn't really sound like UBI. It sounds like a free market. And hey, if you're going to allow people to come in to harvest the resources that are on my property, on my land, or a part of my state, I mean, I don't necessarily consider that UBI so much as it is a free market enterprise that, hey, I'm just happening, ha I'm happening to contribute something to and participating in. I remember, uh, I have a lot of family from Pittsburgh. And I remember 10, 15 or so years ago when fracking really became a thing. Everybody in Pittsburgh was against fracking. Every, nobody wanted what everybody was talking about related to uh, sludge in the water, um, all of the runoff, the noise, blah, 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 blah. But hey, once those checks started rolling in because oil was being usurped or energy was being usurped from tens of thousands of feet below their property, and hey, they made money off of it, everybody loves fracking. It was amazing. Um, I look at this and say, well, okay, if you can collectively as a small society, you're a local town or whatever, um, and you have an energy grid and you contribute tax resources, tax dollars from that local society to help build out the infrastructure necessary uh, to help maintain the integrity of your own smart grid. So there is a cognitive way that you can decide that Bitcoin should be used as sh Bitcoin infrastructure could be argued to need tax dollars uh, to help maintain the integrity of your local grid. But hey, that Bitcoin infrastructure that your tax dollars were used for becomes a profit distribution for the locals that contributed the taxes to build it, to maintain the integrity of the grid. I mean, that kind of pseudo becomes a UBI for that locality based off of the profits of that Bitcoin mining, again, maintaining the integrity of that grid. And I had never really thought about it that far. Um, this individual did. And I'm sitting there thinking like, okay, it doesn't look like UBI. It looks like, I mean, it is effectively because it's giving distributions to the lo locals. But I mean, the locals are providing their resources. They pay, yeah. It, it, exactly. So I'm thinking, okay, that might be a good way for private markets to institute what could look like a UBI. And for the life of me, I can't find an argument against it. So I mean, it seems like an interesting concept. I, I'm I'm very impressed by what you just said and what your friend said, because actually yesterday I was in my hometown, a small town near Hamburg, and there's mm -hmm. um, they're voting for a new mayor. 
and mm. I was just driving past one of the uh, posters, and I was thinking, thinking, what would I do if I was mayor in this town? And I immediately, immediately started thinking of, okay, maybe mining Bitcoin, blah, blah, blah. But then I shut down this thought because I thought, okay, nobody, nobody would, everybody would try to vote me out of office after I start talking about Bitcoin and mining <laughs> Probably, Bitcoin. Yeah. But if I tell them it's investment in our energy grid with tax dollars and the return gets redistributed to all the citizens of the town, this would be a whole nother concept. I'm very, uh, when we ch close this interview, I will, I will think a bit more about that. I think that's awesome. So, I mean, I, I'm not sure it's the right answer. I've only ever thought about this kind of superficially at a high level, but for me, it sounds like a reasonable venture that, I mean, at least there should be somebody that studies it. I'm sure somebody already has, but I mean, it, it, like rather than, I mean, you could incentivize. I mean, imagine if you had private Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining uh, corporations uh, or bit, private Bitcoin operations that come in because they have the know-how, they have the, uh, they have the experience, they have the professional experience managing the ASICs, managing mm -hmm. these uh, Bitcoin mining warehouses. There is a revenue share agreement that the local government strikes with them. Um, there's money put in by the Bitcoin mining group. There's money put in by the taxpayers, um, which, okay, sometimes that doesn't work out. Like just look at stadiums in the NFL or the MLB where there's a joint uh, investment agreement between the city and uh, the owner of whatever that sports team is. Sometimes it doesn't work out. But there might be a way that you can strike a balance between private and public money. It maintains the balance of the grid which we can all agree is a good thing to try to accomplish. That is a societal good that maybe the government should be involved in. And it creates a monetary payment or maybe not even a monetary payment. It can also just be a reduction in taxes. I mean, imagine mm -hmm. if instead of having your local and state taxes, you have zero because, hey, the Bitcoin mining funds the local government. I mean, it, it, it just seems so intuitive to pursue this. And I just don't understand why, like, this is where so, I have a huge problem with politicians um, and particularly those that would identify as being left or progressive. They only look at the very surface problem. And the very surface problem is Bitcoin uses a lot of energy. They don't look past that and go, okay, it uses a lot of energy on the scale of global energy production. It's minuscule. It's next to nothing. Um, but how could we harvest that in a way that actually helps our constituents? And when you actually start thinking about the layer two, layer three effects of that energy consumption, you can see how much of a benefit it would be for anybody locally. I agree. I, th I, may, I think mining is very competitive. So it may be oh, that the returns are very low. And you also need to increase the grid first so that mining can be done without impairing the consumers of the grid at the Possibly, moment yeah so there's there are a few challenges with it but it's definitely a thought worth thinking further like i said i've only thought about it yeah. superficially and my uh very untrained uh physics mind my i mean i only know anything about energy grids purely based on uh, what i know superficially about bitcoin mining um, mm -hmm. so i would never claim to be an expert and i might have just spouted complete goddamn nonsense for the last 15 minutes. Uh, but it just, 
from an economics perspective, which is where my background is, uh, it just makes perfect sense to me. So, I mean, what is, what are some of the things that we can do to really kind of educate those, the powers that be, or the voters that be on what that value add of Bitcoin can be? How, how do we reframe the argument uh, in our favor? That's a good question. So I, I think on a biological level, there are only two things which are intrinsic in us, which force us to learn stuff. And number one is necessity. So in the yeah. third world, people will understand Bitcoin way quicker than in the first world. People in El Salvador will understand Bitcoin quicker. People in Ukraine understood Bitcoin quicker. People, if you look at the adoption of Bitcoin, uh, of crypto worldwide, it is adopted. The highest adoption rate is in countries which are all in the third world. And I think USA is mm. place number five. Um, Vietnam, um, Philippines. And I think that's number one necessity. And I hope it does not get so far that even in the first world, we will have the necessity for it. And the second one is greed. And I think mm. greed is spurred on by higher prices. And my strategy is do a lot of content wise man right that now. Once said, greed is good. Well, yeah, greed, greed <laughs> is, is good if channeled correctly. And I'm, uh, I'm pretty, I think the chances are high that we will we will see a lot of price action in the future for Bitcoin, which is not financial advice. It's just my opinion. Seeing the ETF, seeing the new FASB rules and all of that. And I think when Bitcoin reaches new highs, people will get interested in it again. And then the cycle continues and people will then listen to podcasts like this. And yeah. hopefully come for the greed, but stay for for different reasons, which are environmental reasons, which are social reasons, which are governance reasons, which are ideological reasons, which are theological reasons. There are a lot of people who can view Bitcoin from different angles and all come to the same conclusion. I mean, it, it, Bitcoin is something different, I think, to everybody else. I mean, Bitcoin for me uh, was that censorship resistant e-cash uh, yeah. that is that cannot be manipulated by the government so as a libertarian that's how i found bitcoin that's what identified with me you being the physician you looked at it and said okay i i identify with this because it has a finite supply it's finite coded mathematics with tangible ties it's digital money sure but it has tangible ties to the real world and it's just fascinating to see how people from completely different walk of life, completely different cultures, completely different world experiences, and therefore completely different ways of thinking, still see the fundamental value drivers of Bitcoin just in a slightly different light. Um, it's wonderful to think about. But you said something that triggered the nerd CPA in me. Um, and I'm gonna, I want to touch on this really, really quick before we uh, jump off here. So you touched on the Bitcoin ETF. And I think everyone in Bitcoin is aware of this. And I think even a lot of the masses are aware of this. But you also said FASB. And I know there was that recent FASB ruling that 
honestly did not get any real coverage in the Bitcoin community and certainly did not get any coverage in the global uh, mass media community. Explain to me really, really quickly, um, or rather to our audience, what is the FASB and what happened very recently that I actually believe is arguably bigger and more beneficial for Bitcoin and for crypto than even a Bitcoin ETF would be? So there are accounting rules for what you can have on your balance sheet and how you can how you can account for those assets on the balance sheet. And up till now, Bitcoin was <clears throat> declared as an indefinite intangible asset, mm -hmm. which means that you can, when you buy Bitcoin for $10,000 and you buy it, and then it drops to $1,000 and then it skyrockets to a million dollars, you need to account for your Bitcoin with $1,000. So you mm -hmm. account for the Bitcoin with the lowest price which it ever had since you held the Bitcoin. And that and this is impairment testing, uh, exactly. typically what's done from an accounting perspective. If you bought it at $10,000, you carry it at the historical cost of the purchase. But when it's impaired in fair value or theoretical fair value to $1,000, you carry it at $1,000, even if it one day becomes worth $1 million. Exactly. And that will cause a lot of confusion in in the earnings call from public companies and also yeah. the the loss which you have from 10,000 to 1,000 they will they need to be accounted in the operating uh, mm -hmm. in the operating P&L of the company which will cause further con confusion so it could be that you have bitcoin worth 10 billion dollars on your balance sheet uh, if you have, you really have Bitcoin of worth $10 billion, but it says that you, you just have $10 million and your operating company does $10 billion in profit, but it looks like it only did, uh, $5 billion in profit because it got impaired by another 5 billion from your Bitcoin losses, which didn't even really happen. So it's a lot of confusion where and I want to make clear a, the distinction yeah. between, yeah, and I want, I want to make clear the distinction between the operating income. And where investments would be, which is typically under what we would call other comprehensive income. Uh, it's not related to the operations of the company, but rather to the performance of financial assets. So it would sh you can have other comprehensive losses, but still have a very profitable operating company. But the way historically Bitcoin had to have been treated based on the accounting rules, it would be a loss in operating income. And it artificially portrays a unprofitable company, unfortunately. It would be very difficult for investors to really analyze the worth of the business when it gets somewhat mudded by the strange accounting rules which Bitcoin had. And those changed now. And well, not now, but I think beginning 2024, you can... Yep. change to fair value accounting, which basically is you take the price which Bitcoin has just as you would account a stock. Um, and at 2025, you it's mandatory to account your Bitcoin position with fair value accounting. And I think it's it's very impactful because when you look at treasury theory of companies, it's very strange what happens there because of the inflationary currency because like a, a company needs to grow its earnings per share 
by more than 7%. Otherwise, it would not make sense to invest in that com company. So right. what do what can those companies do with the cash which they have in surplus? They can hold it in cash, but that's dilutive to the earnings per share. They can mm -hmm. hold it in treasuries, but that's also dilutive because treasuries never do 7%. And the income from treasuries is taxable upon receival. So it's maybe yeah. now you get 4%, but that's 2.5%. So it's also dilutive. You cannot buy stocks because if you buy more than 30%, more than 40% of your uh, of your treasury and stocks, you are a SEC 40 company and you get stripped of all your rights of a yeah, operating you, you company. You become an investment company subject exactly. to the 1940 Act. Exactly. And real estate is not a good invest, not a good treasury asset because real estate is not very liquid. You cannot buy 20 million or 200 million worth of real estate every day and then liquidate 10 million worth of it in the next day. That is, it, it has a very low frequency of, of mm -hmm. purchase and, and of, and selling. So what do all those companies do? They go in debt and buy treasuries with debt. They give out dividends maybe. They do share buybacks, like reduce the de denominator of earnings per share. They do acquisitions, but these are all things which they are incentivized to do because of inflationary currency. And that's mm -hmm. dangerous because they dividends don't make sense because they get taxed on the corporate level and then t get taxed on the investors level. The double taxation. Yeah. Exactly. Share buybacks. I mean, you can do them, but they make a little more sense. I mean, mm -hmm. it, we've gone away from dividends, uh, from a best practice in corporate, uh, governance perspective and more towards share repurchases. But you only do that if you feel the excess cash you have, you can't exceed your uh, cost of capital, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if you can't exceed that seven, eight percent, then you do the share repurchase. Or, I mean, so I, I think share repurchases are inevitably going to get faded out over time, uh, specifically because I think you're going to start to see new investment opportunities, not necessarily acquisition opportunities, but new investment opportunities. Uh, and Bitcoin might be one of them. Bitcoin might be the flagship one where you can park your cash for future growth opportunities as they arise, but still be managing that cash behooven to your fiduciary of your shareholders. Yep, exactly. And I mean, right now, everything you do with the treasury is done leveraged because of mm. the inflationary currency. So normally when you have an operating company with the treasury, the treasury should protect you in bad times. But if your treasury is leveraged, you have a lot of debt payments. And if a crisis mm. comes and you cannot service the debt payments, the treasury is the component of your company which kills the whole company. And that's basically the reverse of what a treasury should actually do. And with Bitcoin, it's the first time where you have a, a commodity asset which does not have the defects of a commodity um, because it's infinite, it's finite and not, not inflatable. A commodity is always inflatable. If the price of gold triples, a lot of gold will be mined tomorrow and the price will come down. If the price of wheat quadruples, a lot of wheat will be produced tomorrow and the prices will come down. And you don't have that with Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is basically real estate and cyberspace where there's 21 million plots. I think Michael Saylor was the first to, with, to come up with this analogy. 
and you can buy it as a treasury reserve asset. It has a compound annual growth rate of, I don't know, maybe 50 to 60%. So the likelihood that you will exceed your 7%, uh, which is required, is quite high. And you can have it on a positive balance sheet yeah. and not on a negative balance sheet. So in times of crises, you have a well-capitalized company. And I think, yeah, that is that is very, very valuable. And a lot of money is stored in companies. So I think it will be uh, quite an interesting catalyst. And I think the biggest catalyst will be now that CFOs can think about it, they will think about it. And it only I takes one... I think that's one, the point here. Yeah. And it only takes like, I don't know, Tim Cook to announce. And, I, and Tim Cook holds Bitcoin personally. And if he announces that 10% of their treasury or 5% will be converted into Bitcoin, it's like a... a how do you say it in English? Like a endowment of the asset from yeah. the highest authority. Um, and I think that's, that's interesting. And I think we're, so we're in a period of, I mean, we're in a period of inflation that the West hasn't seen for 40 something years, right? Yeah. Uh, we haven't, I mean, we, in the United States, we almost touched double digit inflation. I mean, at the end of the day, whatever number they put out there, double or triple it. And that's the actual truth, right? So we have seen double digit inflation as far as I'm concerned. I agree. What has happened is this has led the Fed to hike rates at a faster rate, um, the ECB to hike rates at a faster rate than at any point in history. And what has happened is that the assets that are typically used for treasuries, um, typically by banks, they've basically become not only losing value, they're almost becoming worthless because these low yield bonds, uh, the 10 year bonds yielding two to 3%, you're now, because you have to market these to market, uh, you're losing a substantial amount of money on these. And that's what led to uh, the collapse of SVB. That's what led to the collapse of uh, Silvergate, a couple of the other large banks. And it probably is going to lead to the collapse of a lot of treasuries, the collapse of corporates and the collapse of more banks. I, I, I think we're going to start to see that and we're going to see consolidation. Because of that, I think now with these new accounting rules, and this is why I said I think it will be more meaningful overall than a Bitcoin ETF is, we now have the ability for corporates and for banks to better shore up their balance sheet than low yield treasuries that they've historically been investing in. And I think once you start to see the infrastructure and the regulatory environment clear up a little bit, which will happen over the course of the next coming years, it's inevitable. It might happen over the course of the next two or three years. So it might happen quicker than we even anticipate. It might even happen next year because the accounting rules have changed and the ETF is coming. I think we're going to see a monumental rip in Bitcoin that is going to pale in comparison. I mean, everything that's happened thus far will pale in comparison to where we're going to be going with this. I hope it takes longer so that I can stack more. You, need, you, you want to acquire more Bitcoin, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I, I don't I've, blame you. I, I have one more thing I wanted to say on this podcast. Um, I in the, today in the morning, I was writing a tweet and I didn't finish it, but I have the thought in my head. So I want to mm -hmm. to to say it here. It's... It's about the intrinsic value of Bitcoin. And a lot of, even of my physicist friends, 
they always come with the argument that Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. And I think the conventional investment wisdom about intrinsic value is a fallacy. And it, if you follow mm -hmm. that wisdom, you would have missed every good investment since 2010. And they are about to do the same mistake with Bitcoin again. And therefore, I think it's maybe valuable to, to lose a couple of sentences about intrinsic value. And I think intrinsic, if intrinsic value would be the main factor for determining a store of value asset, then assets like steel would be more valuable than gold or ac mm. oxygen, which has the highest intrinsic value would be the investment of the century, but neither hold true. And I think the question is what drives an investment thesis of a store of value asset if it's not intrinsic value? And I think the answer is it's not the intrinsic value, but it's the properties. Because if you look at the name store of value, it already implies that you hold the value in your hand and you need a storage of that value. Mm -hmm. So you have the value in your hand and you need a container to store that value. And when thinking about intrinsic value, that, that it's useful for things you consume, for things you can consume. If I have like a piece of bread here and another piece of bread here, and I want to see which bread shall I eat, I'll maybe ask for the intrinsic nutrients, for the intrinsic calories or whatever. That makes sense, flavor. but not for all the flavor, but not for store of value. For a store of value, I need a container with the best properties. If imagine this house would burn. I'm, I'm looking for a room which is fireproof to put myself, which is the intrinsic value into that room. And I don't give a fuck about the intrinsic value of the room. I try to look at the properties of the room. Is it durable? Is it fireproof? And the same is with basically anything which functions as a container. Like if you go scuba diving, would you put your precious air, which has intrinsic value? Would you put it in a steel tank? Or would you put it in a wooden tank? Uh, is more value stored in IP addresses or is more value stored in pieces of paper? And mm. I think the pattern, like with all the things I just said, the pattern is very clear for storage devices. And I think store of value is obviously a storage device. Um, it's the best properties which are interesting, not the intrinsic value because the intrinsic value is that what you hold. And then if you just think from first principles about what are the best properties of a store of value asset. Um, and just think about it from the basic level. If, if you, if you could design the perfect store of value, I would say it needs unlimited capacity. I want to put $1 of my value inside of it, but I want to put also $1 billion inside of it. Mm. I want it to be indestructible. I want it to have no leakage per design, no inflation. I want to be able to send energy from me to you and to any other, and also to Matt in a matter of minutes without losing the value. I want it to be transportable and portable as small as possible, not, not even as small as possible. I want it to be portable in my head so that's invisible for my enemies. 
and I want that foreign entities cannot control it. That for me would be the perfect store of value container where I would put a lot of my money into it. And basically all of these points are fulfilled with Bitcoin. And then if, if you say, argue, yeah, well, okay, I understand Bitcoin has cool properties. I want to put a bit inside of it, but stocks, they are also a container with nice properties. Okay, you cannot send them from A to B, but they have intrinsic value. But then I would say the stocks which performed best in the last decades were stocks which all deal with stuff which does not have intrinsic value. And these are the FANG stocks. They all share the same theme. They dematerialize stuff without intrinsic value and to, uh, they dematerialize stuff with intrinsic value and turn it into something without intrinsic value. Um, without intrinsic value, but with better properties. Netflix dematerializes DVDs and turns it into IP addresses. Google dematerializes libraries, all the libraries in the world, which have a lot of intrinsic value, and turns them into IP addresses. Facebook dematerializes friendships and turns them into IP addresses. And now what about, what about Bitcoin? I think Bitcoin dematerializes money and turns it into a fixed set of 21 million IP addresses. And that is basically, uh, Bitcoin created a scarce real estate in cyberspace without intrinsic value, but with the best properties so that every other store of value will pay in comparison and every other scuba diver with their wooden tank will look at me with my steel tank and will want to put their precious air also into my steel scuba tank. And I think that is a concept worth worth acknowledging when thinking about the intrinsic value and then thinking, okay, I need to look at the property because it's a store of value and a storage device needs the best properties so that the intrinsic value, which I already have, can be put inside of it. I mean, I don't have anything further to add to that. That was just so unbelievably eloquently put um, in a way that I've never considered before because we always have that argument about what the intrinsic value of Bitcoin is, reframing that saying, okay, maybe there is an intrinsic value, but the properties of it is what makes it intrinsically valuable. That's a fascinating uh, concept that I've never conceived of before. Florian, that was an enlightening conversation. I apologize that we've gone over a little bit of time, but I could actually have this conversation forever because I'm going to need to invite you back on at some point because I would love to discuss Henry Ford's hypothesis of energy conversion into money uh, why energy is the best form of money on earth. And I would love to hear your thoughts on why Bitcoin might encapsulate that well. So we're going to need to get you back on for a complete another conversation in the near future. I love Anyways, it. Let's thank do you it. everyone for turning into the uh, Proof of Words podcast. That was Florian Bruce um, and an enlightening conversation, sir. Thank you, Pat. It was awesome. See you soon. <laughs> we'll see you soon, brother. Have a good one.